This is SciBite, episode 115, for January 14th, 2014. everyone and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to take a look at some breast cancer therapy research, a new sleep apnea treatment, biomedical glue, Spacecraft, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Well, several of those things, Heather, sound quite relevant to my interest, so let's kick it off with the news. Okay, Heather, where are we going to start tonight? Today we're going to look at some breast cancer therapy research. So there is some new therapy that can supposedly partially reverse the cancerous state of those certain tumor cells and prevent the cancer from developing further in mice. So it's this whole theory where they're going through and they're reverse engineering genes. So, I mean, to date you have, uh, you can go surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. You know, it obviously can harm the cancer. It also harms the healthy tissue as well and has many side, different side effects. Right. And so there's a lot of different, you know, uh, women get to a certain point, is there hereditary issues? Is there, uh, there's something a little bit there maybe? So you kind of hit it ahead of time. So this is something that could actually heal it instead of going through, uh, healing it instead of killing it. So they're going through a different direction. So first they went through and they're like, all right, we need to identify the genes out of the thousands that are there to see what could be causing the cancer or what's triggering the cancer. So when biologists are looking for that thing, it's (laughs) quite a bit difficult. I mean, genes work in very, very complex ways and, you know, networked together and it's making finding Waldo look really, really easy. It's finding one braid of grass in the football field that you really want. So they go through and they, when they're trying to do this, oftentimes uh, cells that aren't really cancer-causing get labeled as bad eggs as well. So in order to improve the, uh, the ability for them to guess what is correct, they went through and they did some sophisticated, they went to mathematical and computational method to kind of reverse engineer all these gene networks. They were able to go through and fix a network that for the first time sort of could do more complex gene networks in mice and in humans. And what it's able to do is help them go spot more than 100 different genes that acted suspiciously uh, right before they sort of started to, to turn into overgrow and you know, hit the cancer yeah. area. Yeah. And so from that, then they narr- were able to narrow it down to six genes. And at six genes, they could sit there and do a test to say, all right, let's trigger each one on and off and figure 
where the problem is. And so they were able to narrow it down to a single gene, HOXA1, that had the strongest statistical link to cancer. So they went, okay, well, what if we block that? Could it, you know, what would it do? It actually reverse cancer in lab-grown cells. And so they grew, you know, healthy mouse and human cells in a dish. And the healthy cells looked like little hollow spheres, the normal cells. And the cancerous ones looked, they were all clumped together and more like tumor-like spheres. Yeah. And so when they're able to treat it with a short piece of RNA, um, they were able to block not only that gene, they're able to sort of reverse the uh, malignancy. So it was able to stop that runaway growth and kind of turn them back into healthy cells. So this is one that, you know, they're treating it in lines of mice that they have genetically engineered to have, uh, you all have this certain kind of cancer, I'll have breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And so they're able to treat them and say, okay, well, let's, you know, pack these into them, inject them into the mice while they were healthy still, and sort of say, all right, here's this group of mice. You know, group A, we're going to go through and give this treatment ahead of time. And the other mice, we're going to leave them and see what happens. And the treatment could actually, it actually was stalling out the cancer and stopping it. And so the theory would be to do that kind of thing where start some treatment very early on, uh, sustain it, you know, possibly throughout life to sort of prevent the development or progression of it. Hmm. And so, I mean, the same strategy could be used for other uh, cancer-causing, you know, genes or certain drugs that have trouble stopping that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But, say for in... In the instance of someone who has a great deal of family heredity saying, there's a really good chance this is going to happen, then maybe you could take that before you develop anything oh. and say, you know what, I'm going to go pre- preemptive and just... And then you just never get it. Yeah, just take this because there are people who go you know, say, all right, you know what, we're going to take some drastic measures to make sure that this can affect my life. Mm-hmm. And instead of doing that, you could go through and say, all right, we're going to take this medication and you know, could potentially, you know, obviously save lives and could go through and say, hey, there's, you know, there's a treatment options because not all tumors or growths are necessary, all lesions, should I say, go on to be tumors and cancer. And so this type of thing would help doctors say, all right, well, let's, you know, do this type of medication and instead of having to play it safe and say, all right, Heavy medication, you know, heavy drugs and therapy and radiation for everything that goes in these. You know, everything that looks like it could be scary. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's amazing. That is, that, is, that is really good news for, like you said, for people who have a very strong family history of these kinds of problems. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Any other thoughts about that one? I'm just kind of looking forward to uh, seeing how quickly that can go into effect. Boy, no kidding about that. All right. Well, uh, let's take a quick break right here. I got a couple of things I wanted to mention. Uh, So uh, the SciBite program is listener-supported. In fact, 
the majority of the content on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network is listener-supported. And one of the things that you can do is pick up a book and help out the SciByte program. Now, uh, we've frequently been recommending Audible books, and Heather, you have a better memory than I, but I, I think I might have recommended this book before, but I just got halfway through it, and I'm in love with it. It's called The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. And Amazon is a force in the marketplace these days. And uh, I've wondered, how did they get to where they're at? And how does Amazon have the ability to essentially run at a loss for all of these years? Um, and there's a lot of insights to be gained about one of the most interesting companies of our time. And this book does a fantastic, fantastic job. I'll play a little clip of it here for you. A quantitative you. hedge fund. Desco, as its employees affectionately called it, was started in 1988 by David E. Shaw, a former Columbia University computer science professor. Along with the founders of other groundbreaking quant houses of that era, like Renaissance Technologies and Tudor Investment Corporation, Shaw pioneered the use of computers and sophisticated mathematical formulas to exploit anomalous patterns in global financial markets. When the price of a stock in Europe was fractionally higher than the price of the same stock in the United States, for example, the computer jockeys turned Wall Street warriors at Desco would write software to quickly execute trades and exploit the disparity. So this, this finance company, this investment firm, is part of the group originally behind Amazon, and they saw the web is sort of this up-and-coming platform to make money on, which it obviously was. And they said, well, how can we get in on this? Should we make a shoe store? Should we make a bookstore? How about an everything store? And we just start with books and things like that. Uh, fascinating. Uh, you, all, you get to learn about mistakes that Jeff Bezos made and then the corrections he made to those mistakes, what he did to sort of right the ship, which is interesting for anybody who's maybe learning about small business, has their own business, or is an Amazon customer. Uh, so you can check that out. We'll have a link in the show in the show notes, and if you grab that, you'll support us. Also, I just want to give a quick plug to the new Jupiter Broadcasts Broadcasting Instagram page over at Instagram.com/slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Your search for Jupiter Broadcasting in the Instagram app. Right now, we're collecting pictures that folks have sent in of their new Jupiter Broadcasting shirts. Uh, those have been reaching folks now, and if you've gotten one of the Jupiter Broadcasting hoodies or T-shirts, we'd love to get your picture. We're putting together uh, uh, some art. For the new studio, we'll have this displayed, some of these displayed in the new studio, but we're also just going to be populating our Instagram feed with them. So Instagram.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting to see some of those great shots. People have been sending them in uh, for the last couple of weeks. We just got one as of three hours ago. Uh, a few just went in there. So some really cool stuff coming in. It's fun to see people uh, wearing their Jupiter Broadcasting shirts. So if you'd like to check those out, you can find the new Jupiter Broadcasting Instagram account. And if you haven't sent in a picture of your shirt yet, Email it to Angela at JupiterBroadcasting.com or post it up on Twitter and make sure you just tag at Angers, A-N-G-E-R-Z, Angers, in uh, in your tweet. And that way she sees it and she can grab it for our Instagram account because that's fun. That's fun seeing you guys up there. So uh, thanks for sending those in. All right. Well, with that file, that means it's time for the news bite. The news bite. <laughs> I had to make sure that the Jeff Bezos book was was done. All right, Heather, well, uh, what are we talking about in the news bite? Already looking at an implant for sleep apnea device called the Inspire Upper Airway Stimulation Therapy. It would actually lead to significant improvements for patients with sleep apnea. Mm, like and it is an internal sleep uh, it's almost, device. It almost honestly to me looks like a pacemaker in a sense. 
Yeah, it does kind of. Yeah. When I saw the picture. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, sleep apnea affects, you know, 8 million men, 4 million women. Uh, sorry, Chris, you're twice as likely to have it than us gals. <sighs> uh, so, it, you know, obviously what happens is you have the upper airway collapses during sleep. So, you'll stop breathing in the middle of the night, known as apnea. And when it happens fairly often, it can happen for a minute or longer. And a whole bunch of these, uh, you know, attack episodes at night. You know, get daytime fatigue, increase your purse, you know, uh, chance for a heart attack, for stroke yeah. and all this kind of fun, fun I, I stuff. I think when I was tested, when during my test, they said it was happening to me 33 times an hour, I would stop breathing. Wow. Yeah. And uh, which obviously you don't really get into REM sleep very well. Um, yeah. And it, it, it just leads to memory problems. It leads to all kinds of stuff. So. You know, they have breathing machines that you have attached to your face like a like like the like the alien from aliens that just comes and like hooks to your face up, but it's so uncomfortable, so hard to sleep with. Yeah, so and I was part of it where they were coming through with it because they say as many as half of people with CPAP, the you know, the oral you know, you have that they're not really able to use it too regularly or they don't use it regularly because it's uncomfortable or you know they don't they feel like they're tied to the machine well and it also because because you have this thing on your face this blowing air and has a little bit of water in there too so that way it doesn't dry you out it also just wakes you up in itself because there's a hose involved or you roll over on it wrong or it comes yeah. off i mean it's it's a constant source of irritation during sleep so it's almost as bad as sleep apnea itself <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean other than that you know they've got you know Airway surgeries, you know, apply, you know, oral appliances that you have sticking your uh, your teeth into or jaw. So there's these different things, but what they have done here is it differs from everything else because it's actually from a surgical procedure, and it targets the muscle tone of the throat rather than just the anatomy. So what it's designed to do is it has a little um, device that sits on the right side underneath your collarbone. And it has one wire that kind of goes and it checks out your breathing. And when you stop breathing, the other there is another lead that goes up and it attaches to um, the muscles that the on the sorry the on the electrode placed on the hypoglossal nerve, and that is sort of strengthens the. Uh, the muscles in your throat or your tongue. Mm. So what happens? It says sort of like sending hey, an electrical stop. pulse to the, to beat for your heart to beat. Beat this sends an electrical pulse for your airways to open and close properly. Yeah, it essentially yeah it does that. It uh, you know because your airway is collapsing. What that does is it wakes those kind of muscles up just a little bit and says, "Hey, pay attention. You're supposed to be open and letting him breathe." It's yeah. a good idea. <laughs> so. Two thirds of the patients who actually there was a there was actually a first trial that they have had across you know twenty two um, different medical centers across the the U S and Europe, and they went through and they had valued the about one hundred and twenty six moderate to severe apnea patients who were having difficulty using or actually maintaining their CPAP therapy. Mm. Is what they saw is that. Two-thirds of these patients were actually able to, using that device, were able to successfully control their their apnea. Even more of them, were, you know, had improvements in snoring, daytime sleepiness, um, you know, quality of life. So what's going on is that all the patients that underwent it 
out of those, 83% of them were men. So it's a little bit, um, little bit more, obviously, because men have more of the prevalence to it. Right. And you actually had a little controller. So it's not like it's on all the time. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you that. So you, you activate it and so deactivate it. You could activate it at night. Okay. So that it only happens, you know, when you're asleep instead of in the middle of the day where you're yeah. like, ah, <laughs> what was that? What was that? <laughs> yeah. And 86% of the patients were still using the device every night a year later, which is actually wow. much better than the CPAP. Yeah. And, you know, people tend to fail off, you know, trail off on the use of that. Because they're horrible, and, monstrous machines. Yeah. And so, but measuring these kind of things through various types of sleep order measurements, they actually found that uh, 68 to 70% uh, fewer sleep apnea episodes per hour, which is pretty much on the realm of the CPAP device itself. Okay. So it's within margin of error, sort of. And because you still had the patients actually using it, they had 70 you know, percent reduction in the severity. You know, they had reduction in daytime sleepiness. Oh, I mean, it would be a life changer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, my sleep apnea is one of these things where anytime I just kind of fall out of my good eating reg- regime or I gain a few pounds, uh, it is. I immediately notice my sleep apnea gets much worse. And yeah. it, then, then that creates, what happens is, is it it is it is literally like not getting sleep in a, in a lot of ways. So your energy level just completely drops off, which then often causes a lot of people to gain weight even more, uh, and you know do things like consume caffeine, energy drinks, and coffee, which is what mm-hmm. I do to sort of try to off balance the the sleepiness. But that just creates a perpetual cycle of then more sleepiness and more missed sleep and all this kind of stuff. It's really it's really awful. This is yeah. amazing. And I would I mean I'm not a big fan of this kind of of, of, of having a device in me like that, but Shoot, if I knew I had an 80% chance of of it working out, I think I would I, yeah, it, I, I think I'd sign up for that right away. If it was making things 70% better and you know you're going to keep using it. Yeah. The only thing that is the downside is remembering to turn it on. Yeah. Yeah, although I'm pro- I'm training myself right now because one of the things I'm doing to kind of manage my sleep apnea, quote unquote, but at least monitor it is I have a Fitbit that tracks my sleep patterns. And so uh, I'm yes. already activating and deactivating the device when I go to bed anyways. And if I have a, of course, if you're already a sleep apnea patient, you're turning mm-hmm. on and turning off the CPAP when you go to bed. Yeah. Both my parents have CPAP and my dad is the one who really needs it, except he's annoyed by the, the machine, oh, well, the face yeah. mask, so he doesn't use it. Yeah. It's awful. No, it really is the worst. All right. Well, that's an awesome story. Will you keep us posted as uh, new stuff comes to light? Oh, yeah. All righty, Heather. Well, then let me bring in the band and let's move on to the two bite news. <laughs> All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the two-byte news today? All right. There is a preclinical study that shows that some researchers are developing an adhesive that could rapidly attach and be biodegradable inside a beating heart. Wow. Now that's some glue, I guess, huh? Yeah. And there there are lots of children when they're born with a heart defect, maybe such as a, a hole in the heart. Now there is... Obviously, fixing that is very highly invasive and challenging because you have to safely, securely, you know, put something there in the heart, have a device that's secure there. Sutures are going to take a lot of time and stitching 
the fragile heart tissues very dangerous. So they're having to, they have some adhesives now that they're trying to find that aren't too toxic and they don't lose their stickiness in the presence of blood and under, you know, beating heart conditions. Yeah. And the other thing seems like it's much easier to maybe cut somebody open and get in a stick with some glue than it is to cut somebody open and actually sew something up on the heart. That seems like, I mean, you got to have more range of movement. It just seems like you could do less invasive procedures with something like this too. Yeah. So what they're looking into is there there are creatures in nature that have secretions that are viscous, they repel water, and so that they can attach themselves to things, even under wet and dynamic conditions. <laughs> so able to look at that and say, all right, let's make a material with those product properties. It's biodegradable, elastic, and biocompatible. Biocompatible. <laughs> Which means it's, uh, it's okay to use with, uh, with, you know, with your body. With biolics. <laughs> With your biologics. It's not going to interfere. You know, it's your body isn't going to attack it like it's a foreign object. Right. Yeah. You know, have your, well, it's for attack it such that you're, you're trying to drive it away like a bad cold. It's interesting too. So it's light activated. So it doesn't necessarily do its full stuff until it's been exposed to light. Yeah. It happens is it doesn't, yeah, it has to be exposed to UV light. Okay. So that you can, Put it on somewhere, you know, where it needs to go, and then five seconds of UV light application, and you have an anti-leading seal that's on demand exactly where you want it. It's strong enough to hold the tissues and patches on a heart, pretty much the equivalent of suturing. You don't have anything foreign or toxic staying in the body of these Mm. patients. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, it can... It works in the presence of blood and under heart, you know, heartbeats and heart rates, under so blood nice, pressure. And so it's waterproof. So blood, if it works in the case of blood. So that's awesome. Yeah. And so they're able to use this to, you know, obviously it would be reduce the invasiveness of these sort of surgical procedures. It would reduce the operating time and it would actually kind of improve the outcome as well. Hmm. Well, uh, that's awesome. And uh, you could see how maybe, and I don't want to get all you know nasty on here, but you could see too, like maybe in really serious areas where there's a lot of triage that has to happen, something like this might make them help them get through faster. They can help people sooner and yeah. you know, move through things. So that's really cool too. I don't want to get dark there, but you could just see how there's good applications outside of just your standard medical care as well. Oh yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about something big, and I mean real big. How big? <laughs> Supernova big. Certain turns out, right? Maybe we got one coming. Maybe coming in, uh, almost coming and happening soon in ast- in astronomy terms is <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> is a different time scale yeah. than TechSnap is coming sometime this week. Right, that's a different yeah, the different scales, different scale. So in the past we've had supernova 1987A. That is the closest supernova that we've been able to discover since the invention of the telescope, and it has pretty much given us really good opportunities to study the process of an exploding star. It's given us a lot of, you know, questions and answers about this. Now there is, we're seeing a nebula that has a giant star at the center, which is very, very similar to supernova 1987A right before it exploded. Oh. So they have identical rings, identical 
about the same size and about the same age. They're traveling at very similar speeds. They're, you know, all these different pieces are look very, very much alike. So essentially now they're kind of watching it. It's it's watching grass grow and waiting for the grass blade to explode. <laughs> That's a very different different kind of watching the grass payoff, but I, I it's one that I'd be down for. And yes. and so we have like when they say soon, do they mean mm-hmm. in our lifetimes? It means anywhere between now and a thousand years from now. Okay, all right. So you never. Well, know. it's they're hoping that it will actually, you know, be able to see it in our lifetime. But in astronomy senses, you know, the plus or minus so many years is yeah. so open to question. Right. Could be. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. We only have one other supernova that we're, that's been close enough for us to really look at, you know, since the invention of the telescope. Right. Yeah. And so we're kind of looking back in what we ha- the information in the telescope and the images that we have from 1987 Versus what we have now. And it looks like what we were seeing back then, so there's a possibility. Yeah, yeah but yeah. how long had it looked like that? We don't know. Right. All right, Heather. Well, while we are up in space, we have a really cool <laughs> spacecraft update. That is right. This year should be the year that Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 brings passengers to suborbital space flight. I'm ready for it, Heather. Oh, Yeah. Definitely ready for that. So they've started off this year. They have completed the third rocket-powered supersonic flight. They've had, you know, dozens of subsonic flights. Yeah. Now they've gotten supersonic. So they have the, this is one where they have the plane called the White Knight 2. It's a carrier aircraft. Brings the smaller spacecraft up to about 46,000 feet. Then the Spaceship 2 is released from that. It has a rocket motor that ignites powers the spaceship up to 71,000 feet, which is pretty much its highest altitude to date, reaches speeds of like Mach 1.4, and it has wings that kind of tilt in a different direction. Wow, holy smokes. switches, and that's where they can kind of get some of the maneuvering while they're in microgravity. Oh. And then they... Straighten back out, lock the wings in place, and come in for a landing. Kind of like a Klingon bird of prey, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Star Trek connection after all. It's a, it's Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, see, it's the way of the future, Heather. Wow. Yep. So they've been testing some new coatings and things like that. Okay. So they're looking like they're going to be on track for some of the first uh, paid flights up there for them sometime this year. Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, do we have a little uh, update on uh, China's uh, lunar lander? We do. Remember, we've been talking about the last couple episodes, especially last week, where we last year, should I say, where they had their little lunar lander and rover that landed on the moon. And then they had to go down for the lunar night sleep. Right. They got there and then like almost right away. It was like, all right, lights out. Yep. Two weeks of lunar night. Now, during that time, there is no sunlight to generate power for the solar rays. Temperatures can drop to the minus 180 degrees C, or that's minus 292 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. So the only thing keeping them alive is a little 
radioisotopic heat source oh. that sort of maintains the temperature to, you know, at least minus 40 C to keep the computer and the electronic subsystems just below the deck from crashing out from the cold. And so just prior to the hibernation, actually, they were able to peek up and they snapped the first image of the Earth taken from the moon's surface oh, in about cool. four decades, which is pretty cool. But they came to this side of the daytime. They've woken up. The little rover has already started roving around again. And so they've since they survived this, now they're talking about how long they think the, the whole thing's going to survive. And they're, they say, hey, it should be, you know, it should last a year. But they have survived their first lunar night, which that was definitely a major point that I was worried about for them. Yeah. They did that. So I was a definite uh, check mark on their behalf. Right. That's pretty much the rough patch uh, immediately, that was, right? Yeah. yeah. That was going to be the first rough patch other than landing. Right. <laughs> that's, always the, that's always the hard spot, the hard spot isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So now they're going to get off to the science? Yeah. Now they're starting to uh, do their whole science thing. Well, speaking of landing, should we do a curiosity update? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Now, that was a landing I will never, ever forget my whole life. That was so awesome to watch that live. Uh, so I may not forget that either. What's going on over there on the, uh, on the red planet? Alrighty, the Curiosity rover. We have the high-resolution imaging spacecraft experiment. It is on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, orbiting Mars. It's actually able to go to spy the Curiosity rover on the surface and look at its little tracks where it's been driving around. Oh, so they've been oh kind wow, of see, look at that. Holy so They've smokes. been able to see how it's been driving around all the different obstacles and its route to its you know next destination. Now, these kind of images also provide scientists an ability to say, this is, you know, we see what the rover's telling us what it sees on the ground as far as what's ahead of it. And you can see from the satellite imagery what's coming up as well and sort of combine those two to pick out routes that you think are the safest. You know, when you see it like this, it does seem like quite a distance. Oh, yeah. Now, this is the same spacecraft that was actually able to catch a picture of it when it was uh, coming down mm -hmm. on the parachute when it was coming down for a landing. That's really neat. That's, so, th this is the coolest combination where they've got the reconnaissance orbiter and then they've got the actual rover down on the ground. The two working together is some of the coolest science ever. Yeah. And it gives us a picture of the of the two objects. Just so neat. Uh, Heather's got a link to the picture in the, in the uh, show notes if you guys are listening to this and want to check it out. It's pretty neat to see those tracks and uh, kind of cool. And reminds you there is a little rover down there doing its thing. Yep. All right, Heather, any other thoughts on that one? Uh, not right now. All right, well, then step into the time machine, if you would, Heather. It's time we go back in time. Oh, man, I'm telling you, I've done this time machine so many times. This feels like a solid 80 years. In fact, it is, ladies and gentlemen. This week, the time machine takes us back to 85 years ago, January 17th. 1929. Heather, what happened this week in science? Edwin Hubble, he communicated the classic paper that showed the universe was expanding, which kind of later gave birth to the observation of the Big Bang Theory. Not the television show, but the actual science. Right. So he made, he didn't make any sort of in, uh, in observation or interpretation to that effect. He kind of said, hey, look at this. 
It's up to you. You, the audience, decide. I'm just going to put this out there. <laughs> yep. He kind of, his title was, quote, a relative, a relation between distance and radial velocity amongst extragalactic nebula. Hmm. Just of us, that's if, how things are speeding away from each other. Uh, for such a um, fundamental theory, pretty boring title. I got to tell you, <laughs> it's like, because that really I, doesn't really do it justice. <laughs> yeah, some, I don't know. Sci- you may not think science papers are very, titles are very exciting. They're very interesting. Yeah. Always very interesting. Uh-huh. So he was able to plot the data that he had on a graph. It showed pretty much a linear relationship between um, how fast a galaxy was moving based upon how far they were away from us. So the farther away from our galaxy, the faster things were moving away from us. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So he was like, well, this is, you know, this is what I see. This is the graph of what I see. And he played it safe. He's like, I'm not, you know, saying too much. I'm saying, you know, he's too little too early discussed to, for obvious consequences. Yeah. But he just kind of posted what he had for results and was very wary of saying right. too much about want, what just, it obviously kind of said. Here's the facts. And, yep. you know, let's, let's go from there. Well, interesting. All right, Heather, well, let me recalibrate the Cybite 2000. That way we can look up into the sky this week. That is right. This week we have, on January the 15th, Wednesday, we actually have the new moon. Mm. Full moon, should I say. Yeah. The full moon. Jupiter will be above the moon in the early evening. Moving to the upper right of it as the as the night progresses. On Friday, January 17th, just after twilight, look to the high northern skies. You might be able to look to see what looks like in the stars that are gathered in what looks like a kind of a squashed M. And that is the constellation Cassiopeia. And it'll actually be swinging to sort of stand on its end to the northwest later in the evening. Okay. On the planet roundup, we have Mercury and Venus uh, too too near the sun right now to be able to observe them. Mars, however, is rising about midnight. It's going to be highest in the southern skies just before dawn with Spica, a blue giant variable star, to its lower left. Saturn this week, you can see at dawn in the high southeastern skies to the lower left, much lower left of Mars and Spica. And a further favorite planet around here, Jupiter. That's right. You can see it at twilight, rising in the east. It's going to be getting higher and higher all evening. Be the highest in the middle of the night, moving all the way to the western skies at dawn. That's a pretty good sky, actually. All night long. Yeah, you know, it's we've had a few really, really, really clear nights, like winter clear, like only the kind of clear that comes when it's super cold outside. And I've been looking up there, and then I go right over to these show notes over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I look for Cybite. This week is going to be 115. Scroll down to the bottom of those show notes, and Heather has it all listed out for us. So if you heard her mention something and then you see it, you just go over there. Not only do you get links to everything she talked about, but you can also see it all broken out right there for looking up this week. That's a good sky, Heather. Is there anything else we want to cover this week? Not that I can think of. All right. Well, here's one thing everybody could do. You could contact the show. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and pop that contact link and choose Cybite from the dropdown. You can also tweet at Heather, JB underscore Mars underscore base on the Twitter. Or even better, join us live on a Tuesday over at jblive.tv, 7.30 p.m. Pacific. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone. And then you get to hang out in our chat room and talk with us live before, during, and after the show. All right, Heather. Well, thank you for the great show. Thank you. 
All right, everyone, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. Bye.